Welcome to Secrets True Crime. I am your host, Amber Sitton. What is done in darkness will eventually come to light. That is the purpose of this podcast, to shine light on the story of Susan Osborne and her 14-year-old son, Evan Chartrand. They vanished from their home in the tiny Alabama community of Holtville on Memorial Day in 2017. They haven't been seen or heard from since, and their bodies have not been found. This is episode three of a serial podcast, with each episode building upon the previous. If you have not listened to episodes one and two, please stop and listen to them first, or you probably won't understand what's happening in this episode. Listener discretion is advised. While you won't find foul language in this podcast, the subject matter may involve violence, sexual content, murder, and adult themes. It's not suitable for younger listeners. While this was mentioned in previous episodes, I want to note again, Susan Osborne has a 10-year-old daughter. Because of her age, I will not be naming her, and she will come up in this episode. I will refer to her as Susan's daughter whenever possible, but when someone uses her name in the audio, it will be bleeped out. Also, if you know or have known Jerry or knew Susan after she married Jerry, I want to hear from you. Someone knows something. Information you may think is small or insignificant could make a difference in this case, and you can remain anonymous. Secrets True Crime at gmail.com or the Elmore County Sheriff's Office at 334 567 5546. At the conclusion of the last episode, the investigators had conducted a welfare check at the home where Susan and Evan lived with Susan's husband, Jerry Osborne. They spoke with Jerry, and he told investigators that on Memorial Day, Susan and Evan had left with another man who drove a pickup truck. As they briefly spoke with Jerry and walked around his home, they discovered numerous inconsistencies in his story. The investigators were able to take the information they found at the welfare check along with the emails and information about Jerry's secret life provided to them by Holly, to obtain the search warrant. They received and executed the search warrant on the same day they conducted the welfare check. The investigators told me that Jerry wasn't home when they returned with the search warrant, but he came back to let them in. I asked them if they would have made entry on their own if they'd been unable to reach Jerry. I think he actually came and opened the door for us, but yeah, I mean, we would have... We have a search warrant. We're, we're allowed to go in. So, given the severity of the case, we realized we needed to do it right then. So there again, we're working on a case that occurred two months prior. I don't think the general public understands how big of a disadvantage that puts us at when we have to give this guy 60 days to do whatever he's going to do. Yeah, he had 60 days to cover. That's right. And he did an extensive amount of work in that 60-day period. So what were you able to find when you did execute the search warrant? For the naked eye, there wasn't anything definite, but we did collect areas that we thought were blood, and we took samples of those. We were assisted by uh, the State Bureau of Investigations on the search warrant, just because they have a little bit more expertise in the blood part of it. And like uh, Lieutenant Evans said, we collected the hard drive off the uh, surveillance system, don't know if we collected any computers. 
We did. We did. We sent them to anything that would have had uh, any type of digital media storage. We would have collected basically anything that would assist the brewer disprove anything that happened in that, that house. When you say you collected blood, was it visible to the naked eye, no. or no, you had to use luminol? Something similar to luminol. Where was the blood found? Mostly in the kitchen. It looked like it went through the kitchen to a back door. The interesting part about the back door was there's these, there are nice plantation shutters on every door and window in the residence except for that door. And when we luminoled it, uh, you could see pretty much a straight line where the blinds had been and there was reaction below that line and there was no reaction above the line to which it would appear those blinds were in place at some point, were taken down and thrown away also. And like I said, that was the only area in the whole house that did not have the blinds up any longer, was that back door. Could you get an idea of how much blood? No, there's. No, I don't think there's any way to quantify it. No, not like that. I asked the investigators a few more questions, trying to get an idea of how much blood they found. I never received a specific answer, but Captain Ogden did say this. But it wasn't a couple drops? No. I mean, it was enough to pick up, I mean, enough to observe, so. But like like he said, we can't quantify it. But enough to maybe hint that it was more than a minor injury that would have caused blood in that amount? Are we talking about blood? I I don't know if it's so much... Like we said, quantifying is one thing. I think we were more concerned of the locations that we observed the where the reactions were from the chemicals used. Like he said, on the, the base of the door, uh, it's just odd. In regards to the amount of blood found, Sheriff Bill Franklin has publicly stated in other news interviews that it was along the violent lines and not a finger cut. Sheriff Franklin has been the sheriff of Elmore County since 1991. He comes from a family with a long history in law enforcement that includes his mother, father, and grandfather. I've spoken to a lot of people while making this podcast, and almost everyone I've asked about him has spoken very fondly of him. He appears to be a popular and well-loved sheriff. This last election, he ran unopposed, but when he ran in 2014, he defeated his opponent with 94% of the vote. I scheduled an appointment to meet him, and I drove to Wetumpka to the Elmore County Sheriff's Office for that meeting. It's located inside the Elmore County Jail, inside a judicial complex that includes the Circuit Court and DHR. The Sheriff's Office and Jail are housed in a large two-story brown brick building with a green metal roof. The parking lot was pretty full, and the sign on the building just read Elmore County Jail. I wasn't sure I was at the right entrance, so I asked a younger police officer that was parked on the curb for directions. He told me to walk in and go directly up the stairs to the second floor. I stood in a small line for pistol permits for my turn to speak with the lady behind the window. She asked me to wait for a few minutes, and before long, a locked door was opened by the sheriff's administrative assistant. She led me to the sheriff's private office where I was greeted by the tall man with a booming voice. I spent some time with him discussing the case at length and found him to be engaging and charismatic. I found the detail he knew about the case to be reassuring, and I don't mean things he could have read out of the case file before I arrived. 
I was left with the impression that he knew and remembered the smallest details even about Susan and Evan's family and things that were really peripheral to the case. We will discuss more about this later. I also spoke with Susan's brother, Brian, and he shared some more information about the blood with me, which we'll get to in a few minutes. You've heard from his wife, Melissa. Brian and Susan were very close growing up and continued to be even after she moved to Alabama. He told me that over time, they would go for longer periods of time without talking. They both had families and each just got caught up in their own daily lives. When Susan and Evan lived in Michigan, Melissa kept Evan while Susan worked. She and Brian were married when Susan was a teenager, and she and Susan were also close. Brian and Melissa loved having Evan stay with them. Just like friends and family describe Susan and Evan, Brian is quite the jokester. It seems to be a family trait. Like many uncles, Brian loved to teach Evan to do things that would aggravate Susan. When I interviewed Brian, I could hear the pain in his voice as he spoke about his sister and nephew. If you remember from the first episode, Brian and Melissa went to Texas to visit his and Susan's mother, and when he arrived, Linda told him that Susan and Evan were missing. They stayed at Linda's while the missing persons reports were filed and while the investigators conducted the welfare check and served the search warrant. On their way back home to Michigan, they drove to Alabama to meet with the investigators. They showed us pictures of uh, the dining room and the bathroom with the luminol that shows the blood. And there was a lot, a lot of spots. You know, I mean, it wasn't just, it was, it was, it was like somebody painted the floor, you know, with that luminol stuff and where it reacts with the blood. I mean, it was on the wall, on the floor on a bathtub, in a bathroom. It just tore my heart out, you know? It was like, how could somebody do something like that to my little sister or my nephew, you know? It's like I'm living in a soap opera. This stuff ain't supposed to happen to people, you know? I want to clarify that the dining room Brian is referencing is the same room as the kitchen that the investigators mentioned. I found photos of the home from when it was for sale prior to Jerry purchasing it, and it looks like a large breakfast room dining area that is part of the kitchen. The photos I found show both areas had tile flooring, and the investigators told me both of these areas were still tiled at the time of the search warrant. The Alabama Bureau of Investigations tested the blood samples they collected, and the family was told that while they could confirm that the samples are human blood, they were too degraded by cleaning products for DNA matches. I'm told that the kitchen and breakfast room are pretty open to the living room. Keep in mind that Jerry replaced the hardwood floors that had been in the living room with carpet after Susan and Evan's disappearance. Susan's mom, Linda Anklum, had just visited with Susan a couple weeks before. She told the investigators that the living room had hardwood floors when she was there and that they were in good condition. Linda took family photos with Susan and the kids, and you can see the hardwoods in some of the photos, and they do appear to look nice. Holly also told me Susan had just painted the interior of the home approximately six months prior to their disappearance. I wondered if Jerry replaced the flooring himself or if he hired a professional, so I asked the investigators. He removed the flooring himself? That was our understanding, yes. 
He did tell us that the company that he purchased the carpeting from told him there would be a discount if he took the flooring up himself. We contacted that business and they said that is not the case. Their fee is a flat fee and it doesn't matter what you do. Their fee is their fee and it includes removal of the flooring, but that the flooring had already been removed prior to their arrival. This is yet another inconsistency I've been able to identify in Jerry's claims to the investigators. Well, at least the inconsistencies they disclosed to me in our interview. Melissa did share some other disparities she learned of in Jerry's story. But at one point, he says that she left with this other man. He told her she told him she was leaving. At one point, I think it was a truck. At one point, it was a silver Lexus. At one point, he never saw the guy. At another point, he tried to make it sound like her brother, my husband, to make it sound like he came and picked her up. So they actually, the sheriff's department showed up at our house in Michigan to make sure that that it wasn't us. To recap, the investigators conducted a welfare check on July 29, 2017, and spoke to Jerry. They left and obtained a search warrant and went back to conduct the search on the same day. Jerry came back to his home and let them in. Investigators told me that they attempted to interview Jerry at that time and to clarify some of these variations in his story. Well, part of the problem is, as far as what answers he did or didn't, he obviously retained counsel. And as this investigation kind of more fairly quick, and by the time we were getting questions we need answered, he's not, he's not talking to us anymore. So we got shut down pretty quick on that end. I believe we only had one the opportunity to interview him that first night. And yes. after that, he lawyered up. Oh, he lawyered up in the middle of that interview. That's right. The investigators expressed to me that they would love to speak with Jerry to get answers to all these unanswered questions about what happened to Susan and Evan, but Jerry hasn't been willing to speak with them again. I also know that Susan's family has made repeated attempts to speak with Jerry since they were reported missing. Melissa has mailed letters to his attorney, Trey Norman, and I've been told that Linda has sent letters to Jerry. Jerry and his attorney have both been unresponsive to all attempts. In the spring of 2018, Susan's mom, Linda, drove by Jerry's house. She stopped in front to take a photo of it. While she was parked on the street, Jerry came out of the house towards her car and asked if he could help her. Melissa told me at this point, Jerry realized who she was. He turned around, walked back inside his home, and shut the door. Jerry claims he's innocent and that Susan and Evan left with another man. Why would he refuse to speak with her family? Why would he not speak with Holly? They were certainly friendly with each other prior to the disappearance of Susan and Evan. For the record, I did reach out to Jerry's attorney, and he did return my call. I offered Jerry the opportunity to tell his story to all of us through this podcast. Mr. Norman stated this to me. I don't think with everything that Jerry's been through and continues to go through in this that he is willing to. As a matter of fact, I know he's not. I've talked with him. And I apologize that I haven't called you back a little sooner, but I wanted to make sure that he had every opportunity to decide for himself. He's endured a lot in the last bit. And I know, you know, it's easy to get lost on the grief and worry about what's happened to mom and child. 
No doubt about that, but he's been through a lot too, and the nightmare keeps going, and I don't think at this point in time that he's up to that. I asked Mr. Norman if Jerry would like to release a statement to be included in the podcast, or even answer some questions in writing as opposed to an interview. He said he'd discuss it with Jerry and asked that I go ahead and send the questions to him. I've sent some questions to him and will update you in future episodes if Jerry chooses to respond. The investigators also brought in two cadaver dogs to help detect for additional signs of human remains at the residence. The cadaver dogs. Tell me what you can about that. The residents, they basically hit in one spot over by the shed. Both dogs independently of each other. It's kind of a double blind process. Uh, There's two dogs, two handlers, and they don't watch each other operate. They don't see what each other do how each other perform or or what they do. So first dog hit in a location right beside a storage shed that would be just outside of the backyard fenced-in area in the same direction as the back door that we spoke of earlier. And then the second dog, the second handler, also hit in the exact same location. So the dogs hit outside but not inside? I think... They might have indicated a little bit in the house, but the only spot that they both hit, and it was a very strong indication, was was the spot he's referring to. Melissa told me that when Linda visited Susan just a couple weeks before their disappearance, she'd noticed there were security cameras outside every door to the home. I know that Linda said when she was there, they had a camera at each door. And she asked them, she goes, why do you have so many cameras? What's the need for it? Because she's like, you know, it's a quiet little neighborhood right there. What do you need? Are you that worried about it? And I cannot for the life of me remember exactly how they answered. But she said they had a TV screen. And the TV screen, I think, had like, it must have been like maybe four cameras. And it was like, you could see all four of them on it. Because she said she even remembers looking at it the night that Jerry was supposed to be coming home with pizza and watched him pull in and said, oh, he's home. Investigators also took note of the cameras and took them along with the other computers and electronic devices as part of the search warrant. I know that we took the surveillance system as part of this search warrant, and when we analyzed it, it did not go back. And that's, I believe that's how we discovered that he had, he at that point told us that he, he had had a previous system that he had had to replace. Melissa told me the investigators found a receipt dated June 1st, 2017 for the new surveillance cameras so Jerry had replaced the cameras just three days after Susan and Evan vanished. The investigators sent the electronic devices to be analyzed by the Alabama Attorney General's office. They weren't specific with me about what might have been found, but Sheriff Bill Franklin has stated in other news interviews that they found internet search history for things that any other person would not be searching for. Based on Holly's text history with Susan on Memorial Day, which was May 29th, we know Susan and Evan had to have disappeared later in the afternoon or night. Now we know that he replaced the surveillance cameras pretty quickly afterwards. I wondered just how quickly after their disappearance that Jerry began to remodel. Note that in the following audio, Lieutenant Evans is referring to Susan's daughter. Evan was supposed to have oral surgery 
On the 31st. The 31st. The paternal grandmother of the daughter brought the daughter to the residence the morning of the 31st because she wanted to give Evan something before he had his surgery. The daughter did. And um, they pull up and they said Jerry is running around sweating like he had been doing a bunch of work. The daughter tried to go into the house because the dog had come to the window and he stopped them and said, hey, hey, it's a mess in there. Y'all don't need to go in there. You know, she's left me in and I'm having to redo the house. Uh, So at least by the 31st, he was well involved in cleaning the residence. The father, didn't his father tell y'all that he had come over there and started? I was under the impression that basically the day after Memorial Day. Immediately, the 30th. I still have a lot of questions regarding this visit to the home by Susan's daughter and her grandmother. I did reach out to the father of Susan's daughter through Facebook Messenger. For now, we will call him Jay. I'd been told that Jay had said he thinks Susan and Evan are still alive, and I wanted to know what made him think this. He did tell me that he didn't recall telling anyone that he thought they were still alive, and he doesn't know where that information would have come from. While he didn't want to answer any questions, he messaged me several times over the course of a few hours questioning me about my interest in the case and wanting to know who'd been talking to me about him. At one point, he even told me I must have the wrong person. Once he finished with all his questions, he blocked me. Jay had primary custody of Susan's daughter, and this is something we'll talk more about in a future episode. Susan paid child support to Jay every month. After Susan and Evan disappeared, Jerry continued to pay child support to Jay. I don't know how many months he continued to do this, but the investigators told me they confirmed this with both Jerry and Jay. Jerry told the investigators he met up with Jay to pay the child support because he wanted to do the right thing and pay him the child support he was due. Maybe that was his motivation, but I can certainly think of some other reasons why he might have done this. I asked the investigators if they retrieved phone records from Susan and Evan's phones. They told me they do have phone records, but there was no activity on them after May 29, 2017. As mentioned in earlier episodes, Susan and Evan both love to fish. According to an Instagram post that Evan made almost exactly two years prior to their disappearance, they bought a fishing boat. The investigators discovered Jerry got rid of the boat after Susan and Evan vanished. I understand Jerry gave the boat away. That was Susie's boat, I believe, really. He did, but we recovered it. He did recover it. And that was searched as well. And uh, scanned for blood evidence as well. And the boat wasn't even running, so. I don't know if you're familiar with Elmwood County, but there's a lot, a lot of water. Yeah. That, so that was a theory. Well, maybe he did something and used the boat, but we don't have anything to indicate that. It wasn't right. But that was definitely followed up on. So it wasn't in very good condition when he gave it away. It didn't appear to be able to be ran. And it, we're late, at least I'm a layman when it comes to boat mechanics, but just looking at it, it would take quite a bit to get it running. Okay. Holly has an interesting story about the boat. Me and my husband were talking about buying a boat. 
So recently I had that idea. I was like, it would be great if we could buy her boat. I was like, that would just mean so much to just have something that meant something to her. So I called the detective and asked him if he knew who Jerry gave the boat to. And this was all just happened right before Christmas, just last month. And he told me that, yes, he did. And I said, well, I said, do you know if, he, if they would be willing to sell it? I said, because if they're willing to sell it, I said, I would like, you know, we'd like to buy it. And I said, you know, we'll come pick it up, you know, whatever we need to do. He said, you know, I'll, I'll call them and everything and let them know and see. So I got a phone call like the week before Christmas from the detective at work. And he told me that he just spoke to the, the guy that the boat was given to. And that, yes, they're willing to sell it. And he told me the price. And he has said, you know, and the detective even told me, he's, I'm not sure if it's worth that, but I know it means sentimental value to you. He said, we'll coordinate this however you want. He said, you know, I can give you their number, you know, give them your number, or we can coordinate it through me if you don't, you know, want to do all that. He said, because I don't know if they're related to Jerry or friends, or I don't know how they're connected. So um, not five minutes later, I get a phone call back from the detective saying, he said, um, I just got a phone call back from that person saying that, no, they don't want to sell it now. I said, really? So in other words, they must have spoke to Jerry. I researched the boat registration number and was able to confirm the boat is still registered to Jerry and Susan Osborne. We've talked some about the fires Jerry had going in the backyard. If you haven't already recognized it, these fires may play a crucial part in the disappearance of Susan and Evan. This is Nikki. She lived in the same neighborhood as Jerry, Susan, and Evan. She's one of the only neighbors that has spoken publicly since their disappearance. None of the people that live there really want to speak out. It's like they're scared because they still live there. It was a substantial fire. I mean, the times that we would ride by, and I don't recall if it was two days, three days or what, but it was like a large, what I would consider a brush fire, but we could not see behind the fence. So all the smoke we could see was just in his backyard. It wasn't that you could see any big piles of anything, but due to the amount of the smoke, it was more than just a fire in a barrel. Nikki described it as a large brush fire. Another neighbor told the investigators that the fire was so hot they could feel the heat off of it from their own yard. Others reported the smoke being so heavy that they were unable to be outdoors for days. What was Jerry burning? Obviously, at least one mattress and some furniture, but would that take days in a fire that's described as a brush fire? Maybe he burned clothing and other items from their personal belongings? I asked the investigators if he could have burned the hardwood flooring he removed. Not sure if he burned it. I know we had some witnesses that told us that he was throwing away items in a dumpster on Maxwell Air Force Base. And we know he did use that dumpster because the night we interviewed him, he had some items in his truck that we later recovered out of that same dumpster that they saw him throwing away things into the dumpster. So we know that that was a dumpster that he was utilizing on base. But, you know, again, he burned a lot of items, threw a lot of the items away, that sort of thing. So you would call Jerry a person of interest? Yes. Is there more than one person of interest? Not at this time. 
Do you believe he had help at any point, either committing the crime or covering it up? Like Lieutenant said, I think uh, he'd be considered a person of interest, but we don't suspect there was more than one person involved. The investigators obviously believe Jerry Osborne is the person responsible for the disappearance of Susan and Evan, and their family and friends strongly believe they are no longer alive. I asked Sheriff Franklin, Captain Ogden, and Lieutenant Evans each what they thought happened to Susan and Evan. Here are Captain Ogden and Lieutenant Evans. Do you believe he could have burned her? Burned the bodies? I mean, anything's possible at this point. I'm not sure if his body was burned or, or taken to another location. or. Do you think it would be possible for a body to be burned in a backyard in the environment that he has in his backyard would it be possible to burn a body and there be no trace this is just my opinion and his might be different than mine i think most people are under the impression that you can't burn a body up to there will always be something left i disagree with that i think if the fire is hot enough and for long enough that it would be very hard to recover any identifying evidence given enough time and enough heat that goes back to two months. It's a long, long time. Do you agree with that? I go back and forth. I think, like the chief said, certainly given enough time and enough effort and enough fuel and various different items being burned alongside the body that, that certainly could probably be consumed. Then you think, you know, consuming two entire bodies, what's the likelihood of consuming the whole thing? And I just... I don't know. I kind of go back and forth between the two. And we did uh, the areas that where the dog indicated you know, the burn piles. We did sift that area and we collected samples and that was sent to forensics and it wasn't fruitful for any type of. Well, the, the area the dogs hit on, we dug until we hit roots. And you know, obviously once you hit roots that are, that are intact, then that, that land has not been disturbed previously. So the, the areas that the dog hit on, they explained it to us that they he could have just brought them out there and laid them down there for a period of time. No matter how short, the bodies would begin to decay. And that's actually what they were picking up on was the decay scent. I had discussed the same thing with the sheriff before I sat down with Lieutenant Evans and Captain Ogden. Sheriff Franklin told me that he too suspects Jerry burned the bodies. Even after hearing what each had to say about it, it leaves me with a lot of questions. Can you really burn two bodies in a residential area with neighbors so very close and there not be odors that would cause alarm? Can an average person with average supplies burn two bodies to the point that there's no trace or evidence left behind? We will explore this and more in the next episode. We are also going to hear another hair-raising story from Holly that you don't want to miss. Join us next time on Secrets True Crime. Thank you for listening. If you are enjoying this podcast, please let us know by giving us a great rating and review in Apple Podcast. If you have any information that could help in solving the disappearance of Susan Osborne and Evan Chartrand, please call the Elmore County Sheriff's Office at 334 567 
1-800-273-5546. You may also email me at secretstruecrime at gmail.com. I'm active on social media and often share photos of Susan and Evan. Follow Secrets True Crime on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Secrets Crime. The audio editing and post-production for this show is by Kane Power at OvernightAudio.net.